0: You're listening to Guitars and Granola Bars, episode 20. Thank you so much for joining me here on Guitars and Granola Bars, Music Therapists Talk Parenthood. I'm your host, Rachel Ramback, and this podcast is for music therapists and anyone else balancing a passion-fueled career with being a parent. I'm changing things up big time for the month of June here on the podcast. In celebration of Father's Day, I'll be featuring four dads who are sharing their perspective on parenting and life as a music therapist. I hope you enjoy these episodes as much as I have. This podcast is sponsored by Music Teacher's Helper, the best way to manage your private music lesson studio and or music therapy practice. I've used Music Teacher's Helper every single day since 2011 and it is one of the best tools I have to keep my private practice running smoothly. Music Teacher's Helper is online scheduling and billing software, which you can access from your computer, laptop, tablet, and smartphone that saves you hours every month, enables you to generate reports for taxes, and ensures you never lose track of a payment. Once you add a student, which is super easy, You can choose to automatically send students custom invoices that can be paid by credit card if you make that an option. Automatically email lesson and session reminders, late payment notifications, notes, and so much more. So many amazing features, I can't even list them all here. Every user also receives a free easy to build website template to help market your studio or practice online. Ditch the costly web designer or programmers and have complete control over your website content. With dozens of professional templates available, you'll be sure to find one that best expresses your style. Whether you have five or 50 students, Music Teacher's Helper works with studios and practices of all sizes. They offer a 30-day, no-risk trial where you can test it out to discover how much time you'll be saving. If you use the link in the show notes or go to www.musicteachershelper.com podcast, you'll save 20% off your first month if you choose to sign up after the trial. In this episode, I'm chatting with Tim Ringold. Tim is a serial entrepreneur who is passionate about healing the world using his three best tools, faith, gratitude, and music. As a music therapist, he directs Sonic Divinity Music Therapy Services in Orange, California, but this is just one division of his company, Sonic Divinity LLC. He also is a sought-after speaker, having given the first TEDx talk on music therapy. In addition to this, he teaches other creative entrepreneurs how to help more people earn what they're worth and achieve balance through his coaching division, Empower You Academy. As if that wasn't enough, he's the president of WRAMTA and a tribal elder of TEDxYBC, the largest TEDx youth organization in the world. His highest paying job, however, if joy was the only currency, is that of mad passionate dad and husband. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you so much for being with me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So uh, just to get us started, why don't you give a little bit of background about yourself and your career path to music therapy?
1: Woo. Um, (laughs) Boy, that's a windy road. So I started on stage when I was four. That's the first thing to say. And uh, music's been my passion my whole life. My parents thought it was a phase, you know, there were interventions along the way. I came out as a musician at 22. I devastated my family. Um, Honestly, like they just they shook their head. I was raised in a really uh, in an upper middle class uh, area in Connecticut, where you're more like bred than raised, Mm -hmm. and so they don't really breed musicians in Fairfield County, Connecticut. So um, it was kind of honestly, it was like a big shock to my family. Like he's really going after this as a career. Oh my God, what did we do? And uh, it was rough, and I think I was, I started out as a recording artist. Um, You know, I had, when I was 20, geez, in my early 20s, I had a really rough tragedy happen where my five best friends were murdered, and um, I had written a song for them that I used to sing to them at the saloon in my hometown, tear in your beer, open mic night moment week after week. Um, and when they died, I played their song at their funeral and at each of their funerals and it healed our community, but it was really rough on me. But then the last night I went to a concert and there was a guy named Steve Morse playing guitar. And for the first two hours since they had died, uh, I was at peace to listening to his music. And I finally understood what everyone in my town had been telling me my music had been doing for them. Wow. And that really completed that circle. Like, oh, get it now, now i get it wow. yeah that's that's what the music did for, wow all right i'm in so in that moment i just pledged my life as a musician because i wanted to uh, ultimately bring peace to a million people through music that was my original vision and um and you know the music business is pretty rough and i was in the music business and i was excited about it and i was passionate about it and had wonderful you know things happen and crazy stories for another time but uh after pursuing it, getting pretty close to a major label deal with my band and going to New York and going to LA and being managed by and having entertainment lawyers that represented like P Diddy, JLo, um, Whitney Houston. This is the same guy that represented me. And so was really sitting there poised to break into the, the industry at a really big level. But I just noticed how miserable I was. And, um, It was the first time i i noticed that external success doesn't equal internal happiness and uh the lifestyle in the music business industry is rough and um it was just spiritually you know bankrupt and my wife and i were engaged at the time and we'd gotten this cute little book called the hard questions a hundred questions every couple should ask before tying the knot okay so you know we sat down in the living room with this cute little book and you know, you get to the section on career and it says, what do you see yourself doing five years, 10 years, 20 years down the line? And my wife has her MBA and she is a corporate guru rock star and She loves that world. She excels in it. She's uh, been with Verizon Wireless now for 20 years. And um, that gives you a sense that, you know, Like, this is her element, right? So she saw, like, bar graphs and pie charts and spreadsheets. Like, she started just speaking this language. And I was like, whoa. And then when it came to me looking into the future, you know, what do I see in the music industry? I just saw a black hole. (laughs) (sighs) You know, and this is right around the time that Napster was completely disrupting uh, the recording industry in terms of how people make money. Mm-hmm. how record labels make money and then right around it was also the same time as 9-11 and the concert industry was uh, severely disrupted uh, as a result of the events of 9-11 and so platinum selling bands were canceling shed and uh, arena tours because they couldn't sell tickets because everyone was afraid to go to public venues and so these were re- and people were bands were afraid to fly I mean these were real things that happened at the time and that disruption on both the record sales side and the live event sales side completely turned the record industry upside down in the early 2000s. And that's exactly where I was. I was on the springboard about to jump into the pool and started getting passed by label after label because no one could see a slam dunk. And in the year that we were being shopped, there were 18 platinum artists that got dropped that year. Platinum artists got dropped that year because the industry didn't know how to make a buck anymore and so here's this spiritually bankrupt industry that doesn't know how to monetize itself anymore and i'm finding myself just for every dollar i invest in my band i make 50 cents back year over year i'm just pouring money into this (sighs) you know i just shook my head that night sitting on the couch and my wife could tell. I mean, my shoulders just slumped. And she said, you know, if you want to go back to school, you know, we can afford it. And what she was really saying was, I don't want to be married to a miserable guy the rest of my life. And that's okay. She joked later on that that was her her real, you know, modus operandi. But um, that night I went on uh, the website. I lived near Arizona State University and lived about 10 minutes away. And she's like, why don't you go back and get a music degree? And I was like, ugh, ugh, ugh. <laughs> Because at the time, the only thing a music degree to me was, was a performance degree and I didn't want to sing opera and I didn't want to do music theater Mm -hmm. or lessons. And for me, I never considered myself a music teacher. It just never uh, looked like the right shape on the pegboard for me. And my dad made jokes about it when I had first considered it because I could have gone to college on scholarship for music way back when I was in high school. And it was kind of like beneath him if I was to be a music teacher. And so... I I just was like, ah, you know, ah, okay, I'll go look. Fine. So that night I scrolled through ASU's index of majors from A to Z. And I never got to Z because when I hit M and I went through music education and then music performance and then music theory and then music therapy, and I froze. Because I used to work in physical therapy. That was my Clark Kent day job. And I loved it, but it was just tissue. It didn't touch the soul like music does. And I used to write papers in college called Music Versus Medicine because I, could, I didn't want to have to choose. I thought I was like at a fork in the road. So I click on the link, Rachel, and it was a one-page description. The first paragraph was the type of uh, work a music therapist does. The second paragraph was the type of person a music therapist is. And quite truthfully, the first paragraph read like my dream job. Ah. And the second, the second paragraph read like an autobiography. And so in that moment, I filled out my FAFSA and my online application uh, and uh, immediately you know, changed the course of my life right in that moment because I finally realized I could get a degree in being myself.
0: Wow. So huh. yeah, it was
1: a pretty neat moment. Um, so I went back to school, and now I'm in my 30s. I've been a rocker for you know over a decade. I'm going to clean up on you know give it a whirl. Except I didn't get accepted into the music therapy program. Are you, you had kidding to au- me? No, you have to audition. And I oh man, it had been many many years since I had sang classically, and, and honestly, and and very candidly, very many, many, many beers and bongs and all kinds of things living in that lifestyle that I was living for over a decade, my voice was shot. Uh And so I didn't get in. And I just sat there like, God, what are you doing to me? What a tease. What's up? So I got a vocal coach and I spent a year in lessons practicing every day. I sang every single day, probably four times a day for a year. And I went back again and I didn't get in again.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: <laughs> so now I'm really having a conversation with the man upstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, there was this little tiny private school in Southern California. Now, I lived in Phoenix, and there's this school in California that my wife got her MBA at called Chapman University. And they had a music therapy program. It was 10 times the tuition. I drove out for an audition and drove back the same day with no intentions right, of leaving. And I got accepted with scholarship to Chapman, and I didn't get into ASU two years in a row. And I just sat there on, you know, good Lord, what are you doing to me? And he just said, very frankly, he said, look, I could tell you what it's going to be like if you trust me and go to California, but frankly, you wouldn't believe me. He said, you know, when you get on a ski lift at the bottom, it looks one way. And when you get off at the top, it looks completely different. And I said, yeah. He goes, you just got to trust me. You just got to get on the lift. So I said, all right. And so we packed our bags. We rented out our house in Phoenix, moved to Southern California, eventually sold our house in Phoenix, bought a condo while getting pregnant with a baby, while in school full time on one income in Southern California. And at no time did we struggle financially. And that's when I knew God had my back the whole time.
0: That is amazing.
1: So that's my origin story as a music therapist.
0: Wow. And for as long as I've known you and as much as I've read of what you've written, I I did not know that story. So thank you so much for sharing that. You're welcome. Wow. So you said that that your wife became pregnant while you were in school. Mm -hmm. And while she was basically bringing in all of the income for your family. Mm -hmm. How scary was that? (laughs) <laughs> Just out of curiosity. Nervous
1: nervous laughter here, uh-huh. insert nervous laughter here. It was overwhelming. Um I had no, we had no intentions of starting our family while I was in school. And what happened was my first, it was spring of my first year. Now I had to go back for four years full time, just the way that the degree worked out and what could transfer and what couldn't from other schools. I was really starting over from scratch full time. Okay. So the second semester of my first year, now I'm like 32 at this point too. So just so everybody knows, we're not spring chickens at this (laughs) point. We're in our early thirties going, But me going back to school full time Um, kids are almost half my age at this point. And by the time I graduate, they're officially half my age. And, um, that first semester she went to, my wife's name's Angelique and Angelique went to a birthday party, uh, spring, uh, of our first year there. And, uh, she came back from the party. I was like, Hey, how's the party? And she said, well, I was the only woman there who was, uh, who wasn't either a mom pregnant with their first or a mom and pregnant with their second wow and being the you know emotionally sensitive therapist to be i said how did that make you feel and she said left out now i don't know how many guys are actually listening to this but you never want to get in front of the biological train when it starts Rolling. No, you sure don't. We all joke about the bylaws. My biological clock is ticking and the alarm's gone. Like that alarm went off that day for her. That was it. It was just, that was it. And it was just like, I just looked at her and I said, right in that moment, well, if you want to start a family while we're in school, we'll make it work. And uh, I didn't know what I was saying. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Right. You can never uh, know. You know, and then the terror, you know, quickly ensued after, um, that summer we, you know, sold our house in Phoenix, bought a condo out here over the summer so that we could prep for, uh, you know, having a baby. And, uh, our family's like, why are you buying a three bedroom? What's the third bedroom for? And we're like, for the baby. And sure enough, as we, as we go back in time and we look at the way it all worked out, we were, conver- we were like upgrading the house when we got the keys before moving in. We had like three weeks to, you know, do what you want to do to the place. Mm-hmm. Um she tells me to stop sanding the mantle because I'm ovulating. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. I mean it was like we're we've got a mission here. Right. And sure enough, it turns out as we go back in time and like trace the days and the dates, like sure enough, that was that, that was, was the deal day. maker. <laughs> yep. So fast forward now, second second year, Allie, God bless her, God bless God decides the whole timing of it is that she's breech and she's low birth volume uh, or water volume, amniotic fluid volume. So she's going to be a C-section and it's the Tuesday of my spring break. So we had Allie, uh, Tuesday morning of spring break mm-hmm. and, uh, thank God because that week, obviously I'm in the, she's, Angie's recovering from C-section. So she's in the hospital. Allie's in the hospital. I'm in the hospital. Nobody's sleeping. Uh, Allie's days are inverted and um she's not into latching at all so we are trying to figure out Ange isn't ready to obviously um pump yet because she's just had the baby so that you know tr- trying to get anything there's nothing so we're like trying to do the uh the little um formula through you know a little dropper into Allie's mouth which is me all day all night all you know around the clock And I got back to school on Monday completely sleep-deprived. I do not remember a single thing from the rest of the semester past my master class Monday afternoon because my teacher was talking about he had gotten a 37-page book about guitar nails because he was a classical guitarist. And he was so excited about this book. And I couldn't believe someone could get so excited about a book about guitar nails that I actually fell out of my chair in the auditorium. (sighs) and was laughing on the floor because I was so punchy from being sleep-deprived. Oh, yeah. I don't remember anything else except going to the chiropractor during finals week and not saying a thing to him, and I had Allie in tow in her little car seat, and for me to not say anything to anybody when I see them, that's a rare, like that's notable. Yes. Uh, Anybody who's listening to this who knows me is laughing knowingly right now, and uh, those are the only two memories I have from the rest of that semester. Oh yeah. my gosh! Okay. Yeah. Now I do. I do chalk this up to what a, a thing I call biological amnesia, mm-hmm. and biological amnesia is the phenomenon. Now you, you'll recognize this, where after a while, you don't remember like any of the gory details of any particular chunk of time, and suddenly it seems like maybe a year or two later. Hey, why don't we have another?
0: Well, that's why women get pregnant again and, and decide that they can go through childbirth. Oh, I'll,
1: I'll do it again. Sure. Yeah. You yeah. know, I think it's like it's in our DNA to forget. Ah, ah, ah. We forget that on purpose so that we'll have more than one kid so that our species will survive. So I've, I've coined the phrase biological amnesia. I like that.
0: I like that a lot.
1: You know, so yeah. it's like Michael Gerber in the E-Myth talking about the entrepreneurial hemorrhage, which was what launches most people into their own business. Mm-hmm. While I feel like biological amnesia is what launches most of us into child number two, three, or however many you go.
0: Yep, that sounds about right. Wow. So you were, you continued going to school full time after yep. Ali was born. Yep. And how did your wife um, deal with that? How did she, did she continue working full time?
1: Yeah, she worked full time and I uh, was, I've always been like the more Mr. Mom kind of nurturing feminine energy of the two of us. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm the sensitive artist. She's just much more of a dude than I am, honestly, and we joke about it all the time. She'll even say it. And um, so she took her extended leave and uh, which kind of coincided with uh, summer break so, uh, by the time it was re- she was ready to go back to work, we were all the way to the fall and then, um, gosh, we just, you know, like scheduled classes so that we could, I could be home certain days. She could work from home certain days and we just juggled, you know, but we always kept like from day one that, you know, my work or school would revolve around the family and not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And, um, so what that turned into was a mantra called family first, which I have recited and practiced and enforced, uh, since Allie was born. And, you know, when assignments were due and they weren't going to be done on time by me because of family, I would just be proactive in communicating with my professors, you know, um, can't be there or can't, Finished that in time. Here's what I can do. I'm going to make a counter offer. And I was always proactive with everybody. And it was a, it was a wonderful gift I learned from a seminar I took, which was just the moment you know you're going to blow a deadline, you initiate conversation about changing the deadline with whoever it's involved with. You don't wait till the deadline comes and goes. Just you, there's always that moment. You just know, oh man, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna make this. The moment you know you're gonna be late. You initiate the communication with whoever it is, and they, nine times out of 10, they're amazed and they are grateful because nobody does that. So I started doing that as a practice, just if, you know, and I would tell teachers, you know, that, Hey, here's what's going on and what are they going to do? You know, Hey, you know, I would tell them straight up, my family comes first and, uh, but I'm willing to be in communication with you. So let's work this out and find the best next option. And when I got into my internship, it wasn't any different. And I negotiated with my internship supervisor and she said, how did you get through college? (laughs) And I said, exactly the way I'm being with you. I said, because in life, you know, there's, there's no such thing as a bad idea. There's just a bad timeline. Mm -hmm. I said, so, um, you know, I'm not going to make the timeline, but I'm proactive and willing and responsible for creating a new timeline from this moment. And if you're willing to be in partnership with me, great. But if you're not, it's not going to make it come any sooner because if, and I always told teachers and internships, uh, supervisor, if there is 30 minutes left in the day and that 30 minutes is going to be like either for family needs or work or internship or school family wins every time. And so you should know that family will win every time and there's nothing you can say or do uh, to change that. And, um, that's just how it will always be for me until otherwise noted. And they just, you know, it's, I always tell people it's up to me to establish my boundaries and my priorities with others and then manage them. It's not, it's not anyone else's job to ask me what my boundaries are like, Hey, I don't want to step on your boundaries. So could you tell me what they are before I make requests of you? That said no one ever. So, uh, you know, that was just how I worked that process. And then, you know, I started, I opened the doors after my internship, um, for my business. But my business, again, continued to revolve around Allie. And once she was at a certain point, we put her into an in-home daycare part-time. And then after she was a little bit older, she went into in-home daycare full-time. And then before you know it, I opened the doors as a music therapist. We're pregnant with baby number two. And I'm not even in business for six months when Bella is born. And Bella was born with, as many people know, a rare fatal skin disease called epidermolysis bullosa, or EB, where her skin was not connected to her body, was undiagnosed in the womb. We had no idea. And so I had to immediately close up shop in a six-month-old private practice um, because I had to become a full-time caregiver. And that was when I discovered, like, online marketing and online sales and retail because I realized if I'm ever going to make a dollar again for as long as this child's alive, it's going to have to come from working at home. Right, right. And um, I can't leave the house. And so uh, that was kind of, you know, a blessing in a way because it opened the door to all of the to the online economy, which I was really uh, ignorant of at the time, I guess is lack of better phrase. Um, and so, and that's quite a, you know, um, curve. I'm an extrovert. So the online world to me is, um, not a native place for me to hang out cause I can't hug anybody online. So, and I can't make eye contact online and I can't read faces online and I can't see light bulbs pop in people's faces when I'm speaking online. And so it's not my native comfort zone or strength zone. Um, but I recognize its value and its importance in our life. So, you know, I play, but it's challenging for me. It's not like, and I'm just, it's so funny, Rachel, I'm just old enough now officially to understand why my parents couldn't program their VCR. <laughs> because there are like platforms that I have colleagues who are rocking on and my brain just goes, right, right. cannot connect neurons. You know, and nothing's happening. You know, turn this car over. Come on. Nothing. And that's, that's okay. okay. Uh, you know,
0: yeah, that's okay. Yeah. I can't okay. master them all.
1: No. And so fast forward to today. Now we have a a third child, Julian, and now Julian's three and a half. And uh, he's in preschool now. And uh, with each baby, you know, I just rolled back, closed up, got small again with my business so that I could be available for my kids. And the, the stronger and more independent they got, the more, you know, I would open the doors to my business. But even saying that, I'm still only capping out at 20 to 30 hours a week. Of doing any kind of business work, um, because again, I want to be uh, available for my kids. I rock the minivan, nice. <laughs> so uh, you know I'm getting ready the kids for school, making breakfast, walking Alley to school, taking Julian to uh, preschool, taking them to their after school events, being around for them, helping them with their projects, whatever it may be. And I have other colleagues in you know that are killing it financially, and they don't have kids, and um, I secretly hope that they'll have them soon. Um, so that I can catch up and, uh, cause I'm competitive and that's just, you know, I don't know if it's a character defect or a flaw or a strength, but, um, I know from my dad that, uh, that the most important thing in life is your family. Because when my dad was dying in hospice, he said to me, he goes, you know, I don't remember what my bonus was in 1982, but. He was lying in his room, listening to the family have dinner and play Scrabble one night. And I was giving him his meds that night. He goes, but listening to you guys tonight, I realized I raised a family that love each other. And he said, lying here, that's way more important.
0: Wow, those are powerful words.
1: Yeah, you know, I missed a lot of wisdom from my dad. He was a lot older than me. He was in his 70s when I was in my early 20s. He had me when he was 44. And um, I was just a young punk in a heavy metal band. I missed a lot, but I caught that. And I was really grateful that I caught that because for the rest of my life, his words have ringed in my ear because I think when you're literally lying on your deathbed, you probably have a unique perspective that you never had before uh, when you can con yourself into thinking that tomorrow's coming. And uh, we always think about tomorrow and, you know, Ali's in Annie right now and the song sums it up perfectly. You know, it's like how you deal with today is the fantasy of tomorrow. And uh, when you're in hospice, there's a very limited number of tomorrows. You have accepted that for yourself. And, you know, when my dad said that, he had less than, you know, two weeks. And so I figured those words were specific, you know, like very, very special. And uh, so I will continue to live my life family first for that reason.
0: So have you found it hard to design a business and to grow a business in a way that works with that family first model?
1: Um, Yes and no. So yes, in that I have to constantly rein in my desire for my ego, my professional ego to grow uh, a really big fat, successful, financially abundant business. Right. Because I'm not willing to trade the time Uh, to do that because of what I've already shared so on that side I constantly wrestle with that and um, that's been just a a never-ending nag for me it's like no dude stop working stop working stop working and as a guy you know in my dad's generation was tied to being the breadwinner and the gender roles were very specific and so it was very ingrained in me that you're the breadwinner, you're the man of the house you're responsible so now my wife and I are generations, the real first generation that's openly switching these gender roles so freely. And, um, but it still feels weird. It still feels unnatural to be the one in the minivan, the one that goes to Albertsons to pick up the three things we forgot at Trader Joe's on Sunday, the one who goes to Target to pick up this, that, or the other thing in the middle of the week, the one who's doing the errands, the one who's sitting at the the practices. Um, there's not a soccer mom here. There's a soccer dad, and it's I don't have like a generation or two of of watching someone do it ahead of me to remind me this is how it's done. I'm literally pushing. I'm the first generation in my family that's not the breadwinner. And for my identity, that's a real challenge because it uh, const- there's a little voice in my head that's saying, like, you know, you're not a man because you're not earning the income. Like, your family can't depend on you. Uh, and then for my wife, the challenge of being uh, mom with all of the expectations. I mean, the double standards in our culture for working women are ridiculous. Ridiculous. They're
0: insane.
1: They're insane. It is total insanity. I get a friggin' hall pass in comparison. At least the conversation I'm having is just with myself. It's not a cultural conversation. Right. Everybody's like, oh, he's such a sweet dad. He's so involved. You know, like if a guy leaves his job early for a practice, people are like, oh, he's really committed to his family. If a woman leaves early, to get to practice, people say, I wonder if she's committed to her career. Exactly. You know, it is, it's, it's crap. Yeah. And so my wife has to deal with, I feel like she has to deal with much more because she's carrying a full time job and is still a very male patriarchal designed structure in the corporate structure in America. And she's got children at home and she's got these things like Pinterest and Facebook where everybody, we call them OAMs, which are overachieving moms. <laughs> Um, where OAMs are posting what ridiculously insane, over-the-top things they're constantly doing um, for their children. And my wife looks at that and she sees herself like a mirror, right? Like, well, there's a woman my age who has kids. Why am I not doing that? Mm -hmm. And so she struggles with that piece. So each one of us uh, has our own unique challenge when when inverting the traditional gender roles. And then just from a straight-up business practice, I'm lucky because my wife is very successful in her financial side and so that there's not as much financial pressure on me, even though we do live in Southern California. And if I told people on this call what our mortgage payment is, they'd probably faint because we just bought a house in Orange County last year, four-bedroom home, 7,000 square feet of land. That ain't cheap, you know. So the overhead to live out here and just to have this lifestyle is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So there is at the same time constant pressure for finances. It's just never ending. I mean, I think about it every single day. How could you
0: not? That's that sounds scary to me. Yes, it is scary. Yeah, no lie. Yeah, and especially to know that a lot of that pressure is on your wife's shoulders, and you know, to only be able to do so much about that.
1: Yeah. That's essentially it. Is And, you know, just the the macho factor of like, yeah, I, you know, I fixed the toilet and, yeah. uh, yeah, I, uh, I uh, changed the diapers or, you know, like there's this, this, um, you know, it's unique, but, uh, or not unique. I don't know. It's just, it's a guy like you're, you, I didn't grow up thinking that's how it was going to go. I, I thought I was going to follow in my dad's footsteps. So in terms of being the breadwinner and being the guy who's, you know, responsible for the house, Um, but it does, It that wouldn't, it's like, I'm not cut out for the corporate world anyway. I'm an entrepreneur by nature. Um, but entrepreneurs, you know, the thing about entrepreneurs is they're, they're entrepreneurs from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed. You can relate to this, you know, you don't, you can't punch a clock on your mind. And, uh, that's one of the really things that I've had to practice really, uh, I've gotten really good since January for sure. Maybe since like October of November, most of the time after the kids go to bed, I don't go back to work. But there was a time where after I got the kids down, I went right back into my office and worked for one, two or three more hours and, uh, every day. Did you find that that
0: was having a negative effect on you and and your family life?
1: Well, most importantly, it was having a negative effect on my marriage because, Mm, you know, we're not, we're not completing the day together. Sure. So, um... I was able to automate and outsource some key pieces that I was working on nightly. Uh, and now I've gotten, you know, one of the things that I love about technology and I love about the internet is that I'm learning more and more how to systemize and structure and outsource my business practices, just, you know, the things that keep it running so that, uh, I spend less hours a month doing them. And so one of the things has been, you know, really practicing shutting the door, my office, uh, as a practice. And then with the caveat that every once in a while, if there's a project where I'm reading something and it's an ebook while well, I got, you know, that's cool. But, uh, yeah.
0: Okay. Do you, do you see things changing as far as the amount of time that you're able to commit to your businesses and to your entrepreneurial, um, adventures as your children get older?
1: Oh, it's getting much worse. It's not getting any better. Really? Um, well, yeah, because they now are active in after-school oh, activities, gotcha. mm-hmm. okay. which require time, and you know, like, sure. and this was my neighbor, my next door neighbor. She was part-time when the kids were in early childhood and elementary school, and then she retired once they got to middle school because <laughs> the the mom taxi factor. Once yes. they hit late elementary, early middle school goes through the roof because we live somewhere that you can do anything every month of the year. Oh, I so mean, you, right. you can be in baseball, you can be in soccer, you can be in swimming, you can be in theater, you can be in dance, you can be in ballet, whatever you can think of, it's happening right now. And so there's a pressure to be involved in stuff right now and every other kid is involved in stuff right now i mean i was in boy scouts like i don't think i did a single thing aside from go to school and come home and then boy scouts until i was in high school and now my kid she's eight i can't even count or she's nine i can't even count the number of different types of lessons that you know she's and teams and things and performances that she's already done outside of school outside of church and that doesn't include all the things that are included at school and church. So uh, I am looking down the, you know, the telescope of the future for me, and I see even less time uh, available uh, after school. Like my days used to go till six, then they went till four, now they're down to like two. Oh, <laughs> so uh oh, wow. yeah so they're just getting smaller and smaller um i'm starting them earlier in the day like i do all my personal development now from 5 30 to 7 a.m mm-hmm. so that i can be in my office at nine and then try to get you know try to really bang out some really high productivity from nine to two but the other thing is i'm i'm working towards in my business moving more and more towards a uh, results based business that's not based on hours for dollars Mm -hmm. because I'm finding fewer and fewer hours available year after year as the kids get older. So I don't want to be in a transaction kind of business um, for the rest of my adult career. So that's one of the reasons why My clinical practice is not growing by design. I'm not growing my clinical practice. I'm growing my speaking business and I'm growing my coaching business because, and I'm doing retreats uh, because those are things that are much more results based. And I get paid, if I was to do the math, you know, you calculate your time as your most precious commodity. When I go speak about music therapy, I get paid a, a 10 to a hundred times as much an hour as I do when I actually provide it.
0: Wow. Huh. That's and that's I, a, an interesting reality, especially I think for other music therapists to hear, because I think that is, you know, one of our biggest struggles as music therapists is that we do trade a majority of our time for yep. money and, yep. and that's where we struggle. I know that for me, owning a private practice I'm having less and less hours in the day, in the afternoons, in the evenings to see clients. So, you know, what you're talking about is sort of where my head goes as well as an entrepreneur.
1: I feel like music therapists need to, if they want to be, how do I say it? So if you want to be a parent and I call it parentpreneur. So here's the deal. If you want to be a parentpreneur, you can't just trade dollars for hours. Mm -hmm. You're going to cap out at a certain point. And the honest to goodness reality is that our field, what we get paid to do, uh, only there's a cap. Yeah. So, you know, you're not going to make $1,000 an hour doing clinical music therapy, but you can make $1,000 an hour talking about your clinical music therapy at a conference. So if you want to grow your business, you need to find additional revenue streams that are not dollars for hours related. And this is one of the reasons why you and I have been in the Mutual Admiration Society for the last five years, yes. because <laughs> we have both been exploring and what I would say in your case, rocking this next stage of, you know, how to, uh, market yourself and, uh, make money, a a genuine, legit music or not music, but income stream providing value in a way that's not linked to your time.
0: Well, I appreciate you saying that. And I want to ask you because I know that you work with music therapists to, to show them the possibilities and show them that this is something that they too can do. Yeah, um, And I think it's one of those things where music therapists are so ingrained in the type of work that they are already doing that they yep. don't realize that it's a possibility. But but you really think that this is something that any music therapist is capable of.
1: Oh, absolutely. And the, the, my, my biggest challenge to music therapists is don't be so in love with what you do. This is going to, this is going to sound a little rough, yeah, but talk I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bring it. Okay? okay. The music therapy, music therapists are so in love with the concept of music therapy. They sanctify it.
0: I would have to agree with that. I think you're it's, right on. It's
1: it's like a sacred cow. Yes. And and I, you know, didn't start in the music therapy space, I won't finish in the music therapy space. I'm in the music therapy space, but it's not the only space I hang out in. And what I notice about the community is that it sanctifies this one-to-one therapeutic connection and I totally understand, I experience, I love that very thing. I do it myself. And there's way more out there available than just that model in terms of helping people with music. And so what I what I noticed was it was like, When I got into the music therapy industry, it was like, you have to be all music. It was like, all or nothing. You got to be all music. There's no other way to help people with music that's as good as music therapy. Everything else is bad or like is always looked at, at with suspect or suspicion. And I just, that's one of the problems why our field is still as small as it is, because it doesn't like to play nicely with all of the other wonderful ways that you can use music in a therapeutic context. Well, I'm just going to say it, you know, like, all right, if you're going to go all in on this one-to-one relationship, there's only so many of you and there's only it's, there's only so much impact you can have on the world. But what you're missing when you have those blinders on are all of the other ways you could impact people around the world with your music that you're not open to because you're so in love with this sanctified field called music therapy and music therapists. Now, I'm saying all that, and I'm probably going to get hate mail for it. Oh my God, this is the president of the Western Region of the Music (laughs) Therapists Association saying this? Yes, because what I'm saying is, There's more available. You can still do clinical music therapy and then you could go speak at a conference like I did last year in Washington, D.C. on a nursing panel at a nursing symposium where I had 200 nurses in the room from all over the country and I was telling them how music therapy will assist the pain management protocol they are implementing with their patients. And then at the end, I have a you know nurse after nurse standing up asking me how they can find a music therapist in their area. And I get the privilege of saying, just go to musictherapy.org. There's a music therapy finder or music therapist locator right there on that page. You can find a music therapist in your neighborhood. Thank you so much. I had no idea this existed. Wow. You know, so like that's what's possible. So when I go to conferences and I speak for $1,000 an hour, what people are missing is I'm planting the seeds of music therapy with every single person I speak to. So I'm an ambassador of music therapy. I'm empowering people to use music on their own time when they don't have access to a music therapist. And I'm showing them the pathway to finding one, something they didn't even know existed because the size of our field is so small. Our marketing as a field is just what it is. So how much reach can we have? Well, if you go out and you start speaking on stages and at conferences, you get to start planting those seeds. You get to be part of the solution. So I would not dare say any of the things I said before if I wasn't willing to be part of that solution.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. Good for you for saying it and for being brave enough to say it, because I know that for me it was it was kind of um, uh, like a moral struggle almost to to, mm-hmm. to pursue other ways of being a music therapist aside from just direct service. Yep. And it's something that I've. Um, met with resistance from other people at times, especially yep. in the early days before really the online um, world really came around as far as music therapy went. And um, it was kind of an uphill battle at first. But I think having people like you in our field that aren't afraid to say that, hey, it's okay to want to, you know, make what you're worth and to be able to do more than just the direct service that you're doing right now. I think that that is so crucial in our field.
1: Yeah, I think and also as parents, um, because you don't have a lot of time, it it behooves you to find creative ways to add to your income stream. And so, you know, for me, if you want to write a book, or like I have one of my coaching clients, she's a music therapist, she's writing a book right now on, she's like, what would I write a book on? I was like, everything you do. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, you can write a book on everything you do and you could teach parents safe activities that they could do with their kids. And now you become a remote consultant and now you can sell your book virtually and your impact can be felt in a house somewhere where that you could never reach them geographically anyway. And I think that's the part that people miss is that music is therapeutic by itself and can be good Without the presence of a music therapist, because frankly, there's not enough of us anyway. Well, so and that's you, a
0: scary thought. People don't want to admit that music. They therapists don't want to admit, don't it.
1: admit it. No, they don't. But just look at the numbers. I mean, any you know any metropolitan area you're in, there's not enough music therapists to serve all the people who need music therapy or could benefit from some sort of you know music intervention. And so, you know, if you could find another way to touch them and reach them. Uh, And plant the seed like, oh, and you can go find one in your neighborhood. Here's how to find them. I'm not sure. I haven't figured out why that's a bad, why that's a bad thing.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, this whole conversation about work-life balance that, that us music therapists and especially music therapy parents are having all of the time, you know, this is something that they need to hear and they need to know more about. So um, just tell us a little bit about how we can learn more about your message and, and how you can help.
1: Well, you know, the things that I, I recommend to people like is that you've given a million presentations. Everybody's given a presentation. And the only difference between a presentation and a keynote is the word keynote. Mm-hmm. And aside from the fact that when you gave a presentation, you didn't get paid for it probably, maybe you got a hundred bucks or something like that, but when you give a keynote, you could make a thousand dollars. Now, could you benefit your family with a thousand dollars in way more ways than a hundred dollars for the same hour of your time? Yes, yes, and yes. Uh, Can you get your travel all covered for that thousand dollars as well? Yes, yes, and yes. So can you uh, do what you already know how to do? See, music therapists have given presentations. They had to learn how to give them just to graduate to get out of their internship. They already have all the skills they need to go give keynotes on music therapy and get paid well for them and plant the seeds of music into big groups of people. So it's not like you have to learn anything you don't already know. The other thing that people have as a music therapist in your back pocket that any other speaker doesn't have is two things. One is you are client-centered. So your interest and your focus is on the audience. And when you're engaging with them, they can feel it. Uh, When a speaker is engaging with an audience, oftentimes it's about them and their content. Uh, And then the last thing is you bring music. And music is the mutual friend between any one of us. And music impacts the emotional center of the brain in addition to the analytical center of the brain. And it affects the heart. Mm -hmm. And so these are things that content don't reach. And people don't remember content. The numbers, the percentage of content that gets remembered after a talk is abysmally low, particularly without any follow-up. It's almost like a waste of time. But when you uh, kind of modulate that into a musical message and you take your music to heighten and reinforce whatever the message is... Then it gets stuck in three different places in the body that have memory, which are the heart and the uh, emotional part of the brain, as well as the, the analytical part of the brain. So now the content stays. And so your time was much better spent, and they will remember uh, the message in a much more powerful way. So I encourage everybody to start to consider speaking at local events, association events, um, every Uh, patient community that you serve has a patient association and they have events and you could go speak at those events and really provide great value to everybody involved, bless your family with some abundance uh, in the meantime and spread the word of music therapy. So that's kind of the, the, the horn, you know, that I'm blowing right now these days. And then the other thing is I'm working with you know music therapists to teach them how easy it is to write a book and publish a book yourself that positions you as an expert uh, that you can sell remotely or you can just have as part of a value add whenever you go speak. Um, these are really easy tools that we can incorporate. We've learned really complex things to become music therapists. Uh, the things that it takes to be successful uh, adding a book into your resume or adding speaking are comparatively easy.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's, and I think that gives us a lot of food for thought. Um, And how can we um, find out about your services and and that type of coaching that you've mentioned?
1: Well, um, you know, if you want to go look at my speaker site to see how I position myself as a speaker, you can just go to timringold.com. And if you want to learn more about uh, how I can help you uh, with your business, uh, my uh, website is Empower You Academy dot com and you can find me uh, on the web there you can find me on facebook uh you can find me on pinterest um so i'm pretty active uh in all those areas so come find me you want to email me tim at timringold.com you know uh send me your questions or your concerns or your thoughts um and uh, i'm happy to support you you know um happy to support all of us because as they say, a rising tide lifts all boats. So it's not about me lifting me. It's about, uh, you know, me lifting we, so that's really what I'm committed to. That's why I serve as the president of my region. And so I'm, I don't want anyone to be left with like this guy isn't into music therapy. I'm all in on music therapy. It's just not the only thing out there.
0: Right. Right. Well, Tim, thank you so much for sharing about your path and, your life and how you kind of wrap everything up into this really, really um, inspiring package. Because I know that um, I've known you for a few years now, and every time I see you in person or talk to you, you just inspire me so much. And this podcast has been no different.
1: Oh, thanks, Rachel. I appreciate it. And like I said before, the feeling is mutual. Every time I'm seeing what you're up to online, I just wonder how many hours you sleep at night because <laughs> Not enough. you you look so unbelievably productive and everything you touch is beautiful the design everything you do is just high quality it's just total pro and so and then there's just a giant heart and a giant light uh emanating from the center of you the whole time so it's just it's just this beautiful combination it's great to watch i wish we lived closer to each other so we could hang out more than you know the hour that we get during the exhibit hall at national conference
0: oh thank you so much for all of those nice words. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to send Tim a message, you can contact him via his website, timringold.com. Would you like to be a guest on the show? Let me know. Get in touch and find the show notes for this episode at guitarsandgranolabars.com. And if you feel so inclined, please leave a review on iTunes. I'll talk to you again next week.